Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. We are taking some comfort in knowing that you two are together forever, and neither of you had to suffer like we are suffering now. You were like a lock and a key, each pretty useless on your own. But together, you unlocked the whole world for yourselves, and for us, and for so many others. We promise to carry on your legacy of greatness and giving from now until forever. You're listening to episode 43, part two of Kui Bono. If you haven't already, please go back and listen to episode 42 of The Murder Chronicles, part one of Kui Bono. Why would they want to say a double suicide or murder suicide? Like that just seems so, why would they jump to that conclusion? It just seems very strange. The police begin by asking the wrong question in the first six weeks. They keep asking dozens of people, why would Barry kill Honey and take his own life? Was he sick? Did he have cancer? Did she have cancer? Did they have a suicide pack? Is there a suicide letter? They're not asking who would do this. If you'll recall from episode one, Cui bono is a Latin phrase for who benefits in a crime. And when it comes to the brutal murders of Honey and Barry Sherman in December of 2017 at their mansion on Old Colony Road, Cui bono appears to be the last thing that investigators were looking for. Here's Kevin Donovan, chief investigative reporter for the Toronto Star. Yeah, uh, it, so Barry and Honey Sherman are, are, are very well-known philanthropists and, and billionaires uh, among the richest uh, people in Canada. Uh, Barry founded a firm called Apotex, which is a generic drug firm and is a real pioneer in that field. Uh, it's the eighth biggest in the world, but it's certainly the biggest in Canada as far as generic drug companies. And, and they're found dead in their, their home in uh, late December of 2017. At Honey and Barry's funeral, more than 7,000 people came to pay their respects, including Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. Honey and Barry Sherman had four adult children. Here's Jonathan Sherman, Honey and Barry's son, giving a eulogy at his parents' funeral. To my father, you are my hero. And I don't mean that like how other... I don't mean that like how all dads are heroes to their sons. You were a real-life superhero. When I was a kid in elementary school, we did these book reports on great Canadians, and I would always choose someone like Wayne Gretzky or Terry Fox. I didn't know at that time that you were one of those types of people. What it means to me to be a great Canadian is to set an example for the world to see, to be successful in business and make contributions to charity, and to advance the quality and access of much needed healthcare and education, and to raise a family That is what it means to be a great Canadian. You contributed enormously to so many fields and have received so many honors and awards. I could not begin to name them off. To me, each new award was just another in the pile. 
and no additional award was going to alter my perception of your greatness. But just two weeks ago, you privately told our family that you had been appointed to the Order of Canada, the greatest recognition of Canadian greatness. You were always so humble, but I know how proud you were to get that news and how excited you were to finally be recognized for what you are. I don't know what, what will happen now with that award, if anything, but to our family, you were always the greatest Canadian. In the weeks following the shocking announcement that billionaire couple Honey and Barry Sherman had been found dead in their home, understandably, police were still processing the crime scene, which was the Shermans' 12,000-square-foot mansion, which meant they had a lot of ground to cover. There was 3,000 square feet upstairs, 3,000 square feet on the main floor, and then a final 3,000 square feet in the basement, where the pool was and the bodies were found. Now, in part one... If you'll remember, that Friday night after the bodies were discovered that day, when the real estate agent was taking prospective clients through the house, Toronto police detective Brandon Price would share with reporters that night that they were not seeking any suspects. Now, previously in the Sherman's neighborhood, there'd been a series of burglaries, which had been a real concern to the residents. So it's unclear if the police used that specific language, that they weren't looking for any suspects, and that there hadn't been any signs of a break-in at the Sherman's place, as a way for law enforcement to reassure the community that there wasn't anything to fear, that in this case, the deaths didn't appear to be the result of a robbery gone wrong. However, telling the media that they weren't looking for suspects and that there appeared to be no forced entry inside the home, the takeaway that night was that it was likely a double suicide or a murder suicide. So the next day on Saturday, when police released the findings of the forensic pathologist who had conducted the autopsies and who determined that the cause of death for both Honey and Barry was ligature neck compressions a form of strangulation. However, the manner in both of their deaths had been ruled as undetermined. Instantly, media outlets began reporting that the Toronto Police Department, based on sources inside, were saying that investigators' working theory was that Barry had murdered Honey and then had taken his own life by strangling himself. The Sherman family was gobsmacked. In their minds, there was just no way. When they heard the news, they called out the police that Saturday night, saying, quote, We are shocked and think it's irresponsible that police sources have reportedly advised the media of a theory which neither their family, their friends, nor their colleagues believe to be true. We urge the Toronto Police Service to conduct a thorough, intensive, and objective criminal investigation, end quote. This rift just kept feeding the story, which was getting bigger and bigger day after day. And behind the scenes, Kevin explains that the Shermans were paying a price for a reticent pathologist, that there were politics involved in a ruling of undetermined as opposed to a double homicide. There's a move afoot, certainly in in Canada, unfortunately, where pathologists don't want to make a determination unless something is absolutely clear. And, and, Police uh, sources say that, well, the pathologist that they used didn't make a determination of double murder, so they were leaning towards the the murder-suicide theory. The pathology sources I have say that it was the police that made the mistake, that they didn't uh, 
uh, you know, push the issue enough. The, the, re, the re result of all this, unfortunately, is that, and I learned this from the court documents, the police documents that have been unsealed, the police begin by asking the wrong question in the first six weeks. They keep asking dozens of people, why would Barry kill Honey and take his own life? Was he sick? Did he have cancer? Did she have cancer? Did they have a suicide pack? Is there a suicide letter? They're not asking who would do this. And as we all know from television, the uh, murder cases are they become cold within 48 hours. And The family would initiate their own investigation, hiring criminal attorney Brian Greenspan to assemble an experienced team of retired homicide detectives, as well as a very well-respected forensic pathologist to perform a second autopsy on their parents. Try and look into this murder-suicide theory that police sources were saying. So I um, there was only a one-line press release that the police had put out after their autopsies saying that they they died by ligature neck compression. So something had compressed, a ligature compressed their neck. So I started thinking, oh, you know, I, you know, you start Googling that these days and you get some pretty unusual stuff. So I thought, why don't I try some human sources? And I, there's a guy who was a source at the time, but he's now agreed to be public, uh, Dr. Jim Cairns, who's this a delightful former uh, senior uh, coroner from our from the province of Ontario, which is where Toronto is, call him up and we're just chatting away. And then I say, look at Jim, I'm trying to understand what is ligature neck compression? You know, you uh, the way it works in Canada. So a, a coroner doesn't do autopsies, but they're they're often present at autopsies. And this guy is, you know, Dr. Cairns is a, is knows an awful lot. And he starts explaining to me some specific things, including um, some anatomical things that can sometimes do and sometimes don't happen. And he's being very specific. And so I say, Jim, are you talking, are you talking about the hyoid, hyoid? Yeah, the hyoid bone. He started telling me these things. And I said, Jim, are you somehow involved in this case? And he pauses and he says, I laddie, I am. And he's, you know, becomes very excited because it turns out he has been the one hired by the Sherman family to sort all this out. And uh, he, his main job was to find a, actually an American pathologist to come up and do a second set of autopsies because the, the Sherman family, they had hired their own lawyers and they thought, well, we better get somebody from out of country to be a, a, an independent observer to do autopsies. And because the holidays were coming and because some of the American pathologists are not licensed in Canada, he ends up getting uh, a very respected pathologist uh, in Ontario to do it. So he, over the period of the next week or so, I mean, these autopsies have been done, he's got the information and, and he passes it on to me. The Sherman's pathologist would agree with the first pathologist's ruling that the Sherman's cause of death was strangulation, but he would rule that their manner of death was a double homicide. So Kevin became involved in the Honey and Barry Sherman murder investigation three weeks after they'd been killed. And as he was investigating the results of the second autopsy and putting that story together, what he didn't know was that the Sherman's only son, Jonathan, had come forward and shared with investigators that his parents had a lot of enemies. He would say, quote, they were complicated people and that there are people out there who would have a grudge against them and would have a reason to hurt them, unquote. 
And Jonathan Sherman wasn't the only one telling investigators that Barry had many enemies. Even so, it appeared, based on sources within the police department, who would say that investigators were still hyper-focused on the murder-suicide theory. Through sources, I was able to uh, dig up enough forensic information that caused the police to change their tune and announce that, in fact, it was a, a double murder. When Kevin's piece came out under the headline, they were murdered, the investigation would change course. On January 26, 2018, the Toronto police would hold a press conference announcing the reversal, although they wouldn't exactly say it that way. I'm Constable Carolyn DeClute, and I'm here today to introduce Homicide Detective Sergeant Susan Gomes, who will be providing an update on the Barry Sherman and Honey Sherman investigation. The that I'm willing to confirm with you today is that Honey and Barry Sherman were last seen alive in the evening hours of Wednesday, December the 13th, 2017. Neither of the two had communicated with friends, family, or associates from that time frame until their discovery on Friday, December the 15th. There are no signs a forced entry on all access points to the home. Honey and Barry Sherman were found deceased in the lower level pool area, hanging by belts from a poolside railing in a semi-seated position on the pool deck. They were wearing their clothing. We believe now, through the six weeks of work review, we have sufficient evidence to describe this as a double homicide investigation, and that both Honey and Barry Sherman were in fact targeted. Detective Gomes was very tight-lipped, but one thing was really interesting about what she did say, that the Shermans, both Honey and Barry, were targeted. Many believe that Honey was collateral damage, and that Barry was the intended target. I'm not going to discuss suspects. I believe, in the six weeks of review of the evidence that we've retained, that they were targeted. Although the press conference was explosive at the time, nothing appeared to come from it. And it left Kevin with more questions than answers about the motives of the Sherman family. Well, it's interesting to me, though, and I write a story about it, and that causes the police to have a press conference and change their mind. And and say it's a double murder, but the Sherman family, they had this information long before I came along and they didn't give it to the police. And that to this day, I find very surprising. Why, why did it take a reporter to put this on the front page of a newspaper? Why didn't they just pass this on? And I don't know the answer to that one. It's very suspicious to me. It would take an announcement from the Sherman family through their attorney, Brian Greenspan, 10 months after the murders of their parents to get the police talking again. On Saturday, December 16th, 2017, the day after the shocking discovery of the murders of Barry and Honey Sherman, I was retained to advise the Sherman family as to the manner in which they might contribute to the investigation of their parents' double homicide. The family had been understandably outraged by the unfounded police statement on Friday evening, which they believed from the outset had jeopardized and indeed compromised the integrity of the investigation. 
criminal attorney Brian Greenspan, who'd been hired by the Sherman family, would announce a reward. As an attempt to reignite an investigation, the Sherman family has asked me to announce the offer of a reward of up to $10 million for information leading to the apprehension and prosecution of those responsible for the murders of Honey and Barry Sherman. What's interesting about the reward was that there was a tip line attached to it. But the tips weren't going to the Toronto police. They were going to the private investigative team hired by the Shermans, who would then pass the information along to the police. A call centre has been established to collect tips and information 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It will be live monitored from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. daily and monitored by voice message overnight. The leads will be analyzed and vetted, and any meaningful information will be conveyed immediately to the Toronto Police Service. The Dream Team hired by the Shermans were highly critical of the Toronto Police. The police failed to properly examine and assess the crime scene where Barry and Honey Sherman were located in the basement by the pool. They failed to recognize the suspicious and staged manner in which their bodies were situated. Sitting next to each other with ligatures pulled up around their necks and wrapped around a railing, forcing them into an upright position. Barry Sherman's legs were outstretched, with one crossed over the other in a passive manner. Wearing his undisturbed eyeglasses, and his jacket pulled slightly behind his back, which would have prevented use of his arms. The observations at the scene, quite apart from the fact that no inquiries had yet been made with respect to security practices at the residence, could not and should not have led to the premature and wrong-minded conclusion announced that first night. This was not the standard by which the Toronto Police Service is expected to fulfill its public responsibility. David Chasen, the retired chief forensic pathologist of Ontario, conducted the second autopsy on Wednesday, December 20th, 2017. The three homicide investigators present at this press conference today attended at the autopsy and were provided access to photographs of the crime scene. At the conclusion of Dr. Chasen's post-mortem examinations of Barry and Honey Sherman, it became clear that they were both murdered and the Toronto Police Service should not have drawn any conclusion which suggested self-inflicted injuries. Greenspan would also point out some glaring failures by police, that one of the locks on the doors appeared to have been tampered with. And their failure to conduct a thorough examination of the points of entry into the home. If this best practice had been followed, they would have located a point of entry to the home, which would have seriously undermined their misleading and irresponsible conclusion that there had been no forced entry. This oversight and failing to have comprehensively examined the locks fell well below the standard of what would be expected during a homicide investigation. And that investigators had overlooked finger and palm prints. One of the first steps in a murder investigation is to collect all fingerprints and potential DNA from the scene. And to compare those fingerprints and bodily fluids with those from everyone known to have been present at the scene at a time proximate to the crime. This collection of prints and fluids is conducted 
for the simple purpose of elimination. Whose fingerprints do we recognize? Whose might have been left behind by an intruder? We know that today, more than 10 months after the murders, this preliminary and simple task has not yet been completed. Aside from failing to complete the standard protocol of fingerprint elimination, the police also missed at least 25 palm or fingerprint impressions that were discovered by our private team at the scene once the house had been turned over to us after more than six weeks of police presence. In response to the Sherman family's reward announcement, the Toronto police have their own press conference. Here's the Toronto Police Chief, Mark Saunders, speaking to CTV News. I wanted to make sure that the public was not misled. Uh, This investigation was done thoroughly right from the start to the finish, as with every other homicide investigation. Um, When you read what Justice Pringle said in her comments, that if you don't have a full understanding of the investigation, it creates opportunity for being uh, misled. And I think that that was the case in that uh, um, presentation. And uh, talking with the investigators and understanding some of the elements of the investigation, I I fully support everything that has been done by the officers and, and what was done. Roughly a year after the murders of their parents, in 2019, the Sherman children send a letter to the North York Community Council asking for the required permits to tear down their parents' home on Old Colony Road. It had been vacant since the murders. The letter said, quote, Along with bad memories and a stigma attached due to the incident that took place, no one will purchase the home as it presently stands. Apparently, when the house was torn down, there was still furniture and clothing, photos, all of which were hauled away in the wreckage. The swimming pool was filled in. The investigation would continue, but without any developments, from either the Toronto police or the private investigation team hired by the Sherman family. And even though police weren't publicly speaking about the investigation, through Kevin's reporting, and as it would turn out, legal work, would ultimately get access to some sealed records. In Canada, when, uh, and like in the United States, when there's a murder investigation, there are search warrants filed. And the search warrants, the way they're done in Canada is they, they if you were to ever get the actual document behind the search warrant, it's a 300-page document that details all the witness interviews, the police theories, uh, forensic information. And so quite soon in my investigation, I started going to court I'm not a a lawyer uh, by training, uh, but some patient judges have allowed me to litigate this on behalf of my newspaper. And I got about 60% of them unsealed. A lot of the information in, in our, in my reporting and the podcast and the book and, uh, and the Toronto star comes from these police documents. And then I've done my own interviews to, to see uh, uh, what else I can turn up. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, that, Usually, you know, here when they say no, and then it's like a no, the fact that you've been able to, is that because you've had the the paper behind you, obviously, like that's. Not- uh, well, sure, it, that, that helps, but I'm doing all the preparing all the legal briefs myself, and uh, I've become uh, a bit of a student of, of the law. I mean, I've seen this stuff uh, take place as a reporter for my, you know, for 40 years, and uh any lawyers in the audience, I don't want them to be upset, but it's not entirely rocket science if you get to learn the language and the cases. And so every six months I go to a court and appear before a judge and there's counsel on the other side opposing me. And, and uh, it's, uh, it, it's been quite successful. The, the 
what how I frame it is we're trying to scrutinize the police investigation. The police made some terrible mistakes. You know, Canada's uh, largest city, largest police force uh, to dismiss this as a murder suicide and then not to collect the proper you know, fingerprints, DNA evidence out of the start, not, not collecting video properly. They, they made a whole bunch of mistakes. And so in the public interest, I'm trying to expose problems. And why, as you know, what, why we do this as journalists is we're trying to stop this from happening in another case. And if it happens in the case of two high profile uh, murders, then what is happening in the low profile murder is probably the same thing. Throughout Kevin's investigation, Secretly, he told me that he was rooting for the police, hoping they had issued that statement about the murder-suicide in the very beginning of the investigation because they were in the midst of an elaborate undercover operation involving wiretaps and that the headlines were a misdirection aimed at manipulating the real killer or killers into believing that they were in the clear. But this wasn't Hollywood, and Kevin would say that the reality was far less prosaic. Why would they want to say a double suicide or murder suicide? Like that just seems so very strange. Throughout my five and a half years, I've been on this case, I've been kind of hoping that I was going to find some explanation, for example, that the police have already had a person in their sights and they put out the story to try and, uh, um, you know, do some sort of, you know, have wires up on a suspect uh, trying to say that they're not really investigating a murder. That is not the case as far as I I can tell. The reality is that the Shermans were complicated individuals and that this investigation wouldn't be easy. What do you think of the conspiracy theories of Barry being a hit on him because of his business dealings? You know, just again, from the outside looking in, he seems really hard to kind of like, what is his purpose in life? Like, is he just this greedy Scrooge you know, what, what, to help me understand that. Yeah, no, I would not describe Barry as a greedy Scrooge at all. Barry was fond of saying he likes to do two, he liked to do two things. He liked to make money and he liked to give it away. And they, he and his wife gave away hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to Jewish and non-Jewish causes. Uh, He was very generous to people, uh, many people that, you know, we'll never hear of that were, were, uh, beneficiaries of, of little, little and big acts of kindness. He, so he's not a Scrooge at all, uh, but he, uh, it was Barry's way or the highway. He invested in a lot of businesses that were some great, some really dodgy. And, uh, you know, he, he, there's lots of money offshore. That's one of the things he moved a lot of money around. There are a lot of conspiracy theories uh, that, you know, another a rival drug company rubbed him out. And there's one company in particular that does business in Canada and people were suspecting that maybe they were involved. They, first of all, Barry wasn't big enough to, in the international scheme of things to, to cause this company enough problems. And, and these companies tend to sue, they don't rub out the CEO. It's been alleged that Barry Sherman had socked away $2 billion in the Bahamas a tax haven to hide his money. Here's Jeffrey Robinson. Remember, you heard from him in part one. He's the author of Prescription Games, Money, Ego, Power, Inside the Pharmaceutical Industry. But according to Jeffrey Robinson, when he was doing his research for Prescription Games, and he spoke to Barry Sherman, 
who during the interview predicted his own murder. He was a tough guy in a tough business, and he was going to make his money. And he obviously made a lot. He was worth a couple of billion dollars. And he said to me, um, I said, you, you've made a lot of enemies. And that's when he said, I'm surprised no one's knocked me off yet. So I got to stop you here for a second, because as a, as a journalist, when, when you hear somebody say that, I mean, you had to be like, man, I'm good. No, I understood why. I mean, I'd seen the guy. I understood why. He had a lot of enemies. And he was in this rough and ready bottom feeder builders, a business where he was taking other people's patents legally and uh, making a lot of money off their off of their work. Jeffrey thinks there could be something to a professional hit within the pharmaceutical industry based on his own research for the book, where he learned of an alleged plot by a pharmaceutical giant to plant illegal material on Barry. So the pharmaceutical company sent these two guys to Toronto and they surveilled Barry for quite a while, you know, a week, 10 days. They'd show up and have lunch there and just watch the factory to see who comes and goes. And their mission was to somehow undermine him. So speaking with the people back at the pharmaceutical company, question came up is, can we plant drugs in his car? Put a kilo of cocaine in his trunk and get him pulled over. That would do it. Then they said, well, how about if we doctor up some incriminating photos of him with young boys? That would do it too. In the end, it never came off. But it shows that there were people who were out to seek revenge, maybe not for money. As far as Jeffrey is concerned, even though he has no knowledge of the case, his strong belief in cui bono as a guiding principle believes that a case can be made that the Shermans were murdered by a hitman. And I really believe it was a professional hit. These people who are given instructions make them suffer, just take care of it. So they capture them, they tie them up, they do what they have to do, and they're out of the country. They're gone. There's no trace of them. For anybody, there's no forensics, there's nothing. But remember, if that was the case, why would they murder Honey too? It was well known that Barry was a creature of habit, that he always left work at around 10 p.m. If they wanted to kill Barry, they could do it without murdering Honey too. And the thing is, is that the way the Shermans were killed was very personal, being strangled, a very up-close and personal way of taking a person's life. It's not quick. It takes minutes. Watching the life go out of someone's eyes is as personal as you get. It's not the style of a professional hit. And there's the posing. Many believe that the Shermans were murdered by people who knew them, who didn't hire a hitman. And then there's, uh, there's the cousins. The, uh, his cousins uh, that uh, alleged that he um, stole their father's company. Uh, their father was the, the, the original generic pioneer, and that's Barry's uncle. And Barry did buy the uncle, the late uncle, the uncle died, Barry bought his company when Barry was very young and then sold it and then built the company that made him a multi-billionaire. Those cousins, uh, one of them has fantasized publicly that he you know, wished he had killed Barry. Police have looked into him and uh, I, to my understanding, they've, they've found nothing. In a TV interview, Carrie Winter one of Barry's cousins would share publicly that he had a recurring fantasy of cutting off Barry's head and rolling it down the sidewalk at Apotex. But he has always maintained that he had nothing to do with the murders, and he has a solid alibi. But Barry won their lawsuit against him for a billion dollars, and the judge in the case awarded Barry $300,000 in legal fees. This judgment happened a week before their murders. Some believe that family closer to home had something to do with the murders. There was a reading of Barry's will, 
Apparently, Honey didn't have one, or there wasn't one that has been found. So essentially, it was Barry's will, which stated that if Honey should survive him, that his entire estate would go to her. And if she didn't, then it would be split equally between the children. There was nothing in the will for charities or other family members. So have you talked to the Sherman family? Yes. Over the five and a half years, I've talked to two of the four children. Uh, I've interviewed them. Uh, the other two have declined. I keep trying, though. I have interviewed uh, aunts and uncles and, and you know cousins and people like that. So they're not they're a very, uh, very media shy family they, they always they always were, you know, being tough, be tough to be thrust into the spotlight, I suppose. I come from the point of view that particularly when there's somebody who's wrongfully accused or somebody, you know, or a case in this case is wrongfully interpreted as a murder suicide. I thought that the family would be delighted to speak. And, uh, you know, they, they still are uh, reluctant to talk. I think I'm the only person who's ever interviewed any members of the family, despite others trying. I mean, it seems like there's the indications that they want to find you know, they've been very uh, critical of the police. So, I mean, that's a good indication that they would want the truth to be known. And through your reporting, you know, the truth is getting a little bit more clear, right? I'm surprised too, especially because I think the son has been kind of put in the spotlight as being maybe involved in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So when I interviewed the son, Jonathan, and he has three sisters, he told me that his sister, Alexandra, believes that he is involved somehow in the murders. Jonathan, you know, in that interview, you know, he comes out with this uh, and I reported on it. He says that uh, only he knows that he is not involved and he says that he would never do anything to harm his, his parents and he you know, loved them very much. It's the from what I understand from my sources, the sister has gone to the police with this information years ago, and the police are investigating, uh, I think, to this day, all sorts of, of aspects of this crime. Nobody uh, has been cleared publicly. Nobody has been said to be not involved. A year after Honey and Barry were murdered, Alexandra, one of Honey and Barry's adult children, would go to police and tell them that she believed her brother Jonathan had something to do with their parents' murders. There were emails exchanged between Barry, Jonathan, and Jonathan's business partner, Adam. According to Kevin, a few weeks before the murders, Barry had sent Jonathan and his business partner, Adam, a request for them to pay back between 50 to $60 million, money that Barry had invested in Jonathan and Adam's businesses. Essentially, he was cutting Jonathan off. Apparently, things hadn't gone Barry's way in one of his lawsuits, and he'd been court-ordered to pay a drug company $580 million in a lawsuit that he'd lost. There was another email that Jonathan had sent to his sisters, sometime before the murders, trying to rally their support to have their father declared incompetent based on his support of a longtime friend and business associate named Frank D'Angelo. Over the years, Barry had invested millions of dollars in ventures, which included films and a brewery. Barry's kids, especially Jonathan, didn't understand his connection to Frank, who they believed was a shady guy. Talk to the daughter who thinks that it was the brother? I, I've, I've talked to her about some things. Um, 
I, I not talked to her about that thing. I've talked to her about how she feels about her, her father. And um, I, she does say some in the podcast, some strong things about her brother, just that, that he's uh, greedy. Four years after the murders, the Toronto Police Department would hold another press conference. Here's Detective Brandon Price on December 14th, 2021. We have been able to eliminate the vast majority of people captured on the video. We are left with one individual whom we have been unable to identify. I'll ask that you take a look at the screen and observe this individual. Through our investigation, we have been unable to determine what this individual's purpose was in the neighborhood. The timing of this individual's appearance is in line with when we believe the murders took place. Based on this evidence, we're classifying this individual as a suspect. Though there is a lack of detail in features of this individual, we believe that further information from the public could assist us in making an identification. I would ask that you pay particular attention to the gait or the stride or walk style that this person uh, has on the video. We are not able to provide you with any certainty the person's age, weight, or skin color. However, through photogametry performed, we have been able to determine that the suspect in this video is standing between five foot six and three quarters and not five foot nine and a half inches. Detective Price would say that they waited to release the video because they wanted to go through all the cell data they had collected and that that took four years to see if it matched the so-called walking man suspect. Uh, the only suspect the police have ever identified, and it's not much of an identification, is a man that they call the walking man who's picked up on video surveillance in the Sherman vicinity of their home uh, that evening around the time of the murders. This person is between five foot six and five foot nine, walks with an unusual gait, and uh, could be actually a young person pretending to be uh, an older person. The person, and you look at the video, it looks kind of portly, uh, older, could be a you know, 30 year old just posing as that and nobody knows. And another example, a more uh, current example of police mistake is they just put that video out just last year. They waited four years to show that video to the public. They showed it to the public saying, hey, does anybody recognize this guy? And, you know, I don't know about you, but my mind, after four years, I don't remember things as well. And still the police wait to see if anybody in, a, in an area, you know, where houses, you know, bought and sold, people move out. It's crazy. It's been more than a year since the Toronto Police Department released the video of their suspect, known only as the walking man. It's unclear if they are any closer to closing in on the killer or killers responsible for the murders of Honey and Barry Sherman. But after more than five and a half years of investigating this case, Kevin has a theory of what he believes happened on December 13th, 2017, between 8.30 and 10 p.m. That Honey came home from shopping on that Wednesday evening at around 8 p.m. That she was walking through the door on the main floor and was either attacked from behind, or that someone was already in the house when she arrived, but in either case, it was a blitz attack. You have to remember that when the housekeeper arrived that Friday morning, around 36 hours later, she would find a cell phone on the floor of what's been described as a powder room 
on the first floor, a bathroom that Honey never used, that maybe her cell phone got knocked out of her hand in a struggle and somehow ended up on the floor of the powder room, or that's where Honey ran to as she was trying to escape and was then dragged out of there, leaving her phone on the floor. And it's during this attack that she received the blow to her face. Honey has been described as a fighter by her friends and that she was not the type to go quietly, but ultimately she would be taken down into the basement. Barry left Apotex at 8.30 and headed straight home. He usually left at 10, but for whatever reason, he left earlier that night. And he pulled his car into the underground garage just before 9 p.m. And that when he walked inside the basement, the killer or killers were waiting for him. Not expecting to be ambushed, he was easily taken down. The home inspection paperwork, his BlackBerry device, and the gloves that he'd been wearing were found later by the real estate agent strewn upon the floor of the basement. Now, based on the impressions that were found on Honey and Barry's wrists, it is believed that they had been tied up while they were still alive because blood had to be flowing in their bodies to leave those marks. And it was at some point that both Honey and Barry were strangled with what has been described as a thin ligature, which was not the size of the belts that would be found looped around their necks holding them into that posed position with the help of the pool railing that was behind them as they were in that seated position. Remember, the way that they were sitting resembled the two sculptures in the nearby hobby room, with Barry's leg crossed over the other one at the ankles, his eyeglasses neatly in place on his nose. It was beneath those belts that that thin ligature impression would be found. Neither the ropes or whatever was used to bind their wrists or the thin ligature believed to be the murder weapon were found at the scene. I believe that this is a case that was perpetrated by people who knew Barry and Honey uh, and wanted something from them and you know, hated them in parts, but maybe also uh, liked them. Uh, the way they're, certainly the way Barry is, is posed. Uh, I mean, he's been murdered, but, but it's, um, he's very passive. It's, uh, the eyeglasses on, I think, is a show of respect for him. Honey is the only one with any physical, uh, visible uh, ev evidence of being struck. She's been struck below her right eye. Uh, but yeah, I think the people that wanted this done uh, were involved in doing it themselves. I don't think this is an international hitman. The case has larger implications in Canada's public records request system. Despite the family being very active in trying to find the killer or killers, it's unclear why they tried to block the public from getting the will. Because it sounds like the family blocked that that request to get they those. They did. Yeah, they did. And it was, I mean, it's never happened before. Wills and estates are very public in Canada. They're, they're just autom almost automatically public. And, and when they went to court to block me, and I, I won, uh, at most of the stages and then uh they wanted to go to the highest court which and had we lost i on my tombstone it would have uh, there would be no precedent you know would have said you know kevin donovan the guy who closed the courts in canada but actually the 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 spin-off of this of us winning this case it, it is uh, made um court documents more public in canada so so it was good so i'm glad they fought us in september 2022 a deal was announced that Apotex would be sold to an American private equity investment firm called SK Capital Partners. The sale would be official in April of 2023, 
for an undisclosed amount. But it's believed that the four adult children received a total of $3 billion. And remember, Barry had many other companies within his vast estate, and also allegedly a couple billion dollars in an offshore account, which means that all four Sherman children are now billionaires. But the idea of cui bono, who benefits, isn't always just about money. Who benefits could be about someone whose sole goal was to have Honey and Barry Sherman suffer. It could be about revenge. Revenge against people who appeared to have it all. Money, prestige, children, grandchildren. In fact, before their murders, Honey and Barry were about to be acknowledged for all their philanthropy. What if the motive for murder was revenge? Someone who perceived the Shermans as horrible people and wanted them to suffer. Barry was described as cutthroat, but in a business of pharmaceuticals, you had to be. Being litigious was the only way to have a run at expiring patents. Basically, you had to sue for the privilege to do so. But Barry was also known for his incredible generosity and wanting to give without any strings or acknowledgement. And Honey was confident, a connector who knew how to bring people together in big ways to raise a lot of money for charities. But she was also known to be aggressive in a way that rubbed some people the wrong way. If you were someone who wanted to have revenge against Honey and Barry Sherman, who knew their habits and routines, who knew them well enough to know that after being married for nearly 50 years, Barry watching Honey being murdered or vice versa would be a suffering beyond imagining. You have to say to yourself, what, what am I not seeing? Because there's something there that I'm not seeing. And I've thought about it, and I, I called a, a, an old homicide cop I know, and I described it to him, and he had the same conclusion I had. They were tied up and strangled. They died of strangulation. One would have died first. That says to me, somebody wanted Barry to see his wife die, or his wife to see Barry die. This was maybe not about money. This was about revenge. Before I let you go, I wanted to remind you to check out our bonus episode on this case, which is available right now. Here, my producer, Brandon Morgan, and I discuss the case in more detail. And as always, thanks for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.